thought somebody came just to hear that song. That was the whole service for them. They are in a fire, and they just needed to hear it said over and over again, there's another in the fire. And so if that's you, you can just check out for the sermon because I, I don't want to inter- interrupt that message. That's, that's so important. Uh, this morning we are going to look at um, the Exodus event. So the book of Exodus is the second book in your Bible. So we're going to look at page 46, ex- Exodus uh, chapter 1. And then we're going to turn to page 119. These are in your uh, blue Bible if you're using that. Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. So Exodus 3. Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. Let me just read as you sort of sit and see. And when we're doing this, let's just try to remind ourselves we're not here primarily just to pick up information. Um, I think Shelley said some of that in her announcement. It's good to know about the book of Acts, but it's better to be known by God by studying the book of Acts. So we're hoping there's transformation, not just, hey, Paul gave some good information today. Exodus chapter 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, and then there's 12 names here. It starts with Reuben, it goes down to Joseph, who was already in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Chapter 2, verse 23, probably just on the next page. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. Numbers chapter 11. Let's look at uh, verses 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them, this is after the Israelites have crossed over in the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing, the the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Same chapter, verse 31 
Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and by a day's journey on the other around the camp and about two cubits above ground. And the people rose all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because they buried the people who had the craving. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. I don't know if you're like me and you have a, a couple of favorite movies that whenever you're flipping through the channels, if it's on, you stop. Even though you've seen it like a thousand times, it's got so many cool scenes in it or somehow it struck a chord and it could be halfway through, could be near the end, could be the beginning, but you kind of get sucked in again to this favorite movie. I have a few of those. One of them is a, now an old movie. It's called Apollo 13. Some of you know that Tom Hanks movie where they were basically trying to reenact what happened on that, what was a failed mission to the moon, but was a great rescue mission. You remember the, the rocket gets up into outer space with the three astronauts and they're getting along on their way to the moon when a, they have a disastrous mechanical failure. And instead of landing on the moon, they spend the whole movie, and obviously in real life, trying to just get these three astronauts home. And so they're traveling back. They've sort of used the gravitational pull of the moon to swing back around to the Earth. And they're traveling back, and they travel at speeds of 25,000 miles per hour. It's hard to even imagine. And as they're traveling, if you know anything about entering from outer space, you've got to come in at the right angle to the earth. If, you, if it's too shallow, you skip off the atmosphere, you never come back. If you're too steep, you burn up on re-entry. And as the people on the ground, the people in Houston, the, the ground team, they were saying, hey, they're coming in at the, a bad angle. They're on the wrong trajectory. And so they have to do a, a burn to get the, the module to come into a different trajectory so that they don't burn up on reentry. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. The three astronauts are kind of huddled in this cold capsule. And Houston calls up and says, hey, we need to have a burn. We need to, to reorient ourselves. And they say, okay, we've got to start up all the computers. And, of course, they can't start up all the computers because of power issues, and uh, they say, well, you know, in order to know where we are, we need to have a fixed point of orientation. 
I mean, if you're out in outer space and you're just moving around, you have no idea if you've gone too far or too short because you don't have one fixed point. And so the people in Houston are kind of whispering to themselves, trying to say, what do, what's the fixed point? We don't know. And here's the beautiful moment of the movie for me is Tom Hanks is sitting in this capsule and he has this little tiny square wi- or triangle window. And as they're trying to discuss what fixed point, the earth comes up into the window. And Tom says, we have our fixed point. It's home. I don't know if you're like me, but I feel like my life's traveling at 25,000 miles an hour. It feels like the culture's changing. Everything's changing. It feels like the world's gone crazy. And I want to know if I'm on the right trajectory. And I think this helps us to know there is one fixed point in which we must all navigate by, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. That's our home. We are all, we all must look at that one place because there's going to be all kinds of debris and there's going to be all kinds of other things floating around. We're going to get disoriented ourselves. So when that happens, we've got to look through the tiny window of our soul and say, I see Jesus. And I'm orienting myself towards Jesus so that but I don't burn up before I get home. Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Most of us know that. But then there's a comma. Don't get carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. You hear what the writer is saying? There's going to be a lot of other points out there that are going to feel like, hey, you should orient your life according to this point. And don't get carried away. There's only one person that remains solid. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's going to bring us home. Amen? So for much of this year, we're going to orient ourselves towards Jesus. We're going to be staring at Jesus. We're going to be course correcting according to Jesus. And we're going to do that through the book of Luke. But before we get there, I've wanted to take several weeks, and I think you'll get tired of it in two or three weeks, of asking this one question, where are you? But before we orient ourselves to him, let's step back and say, well, where am I? What trajectory am I on? Is there something I'm staring at? Is there some pace of life that I'm trying to maintain that I'm not able to? I'm going to burn up before I get home. And we want to try to ask and answer the questions like this. What trajectory is your life on? If you keep traveling in the same direction at the same speed, will you burn up before you arrive home? Do you need to make a course correction? I want us to consider these questions by examining the Exodus event, and it breaks down into three stages. Uh, One, awakened desire. If you're taking notes, it's probably easier to say desire, disorientation, reorientation. Desire, disorientation, reorientation. 
Let's get just have some background. Probably most of us know this story. It's so familiar and so repeated in the Bible. A great famine has happened in the Middle East. Uh, Joseph has, has, by God's providence, been transported down to Egypt. He is basically saving, through God's providence, all those people because of saving up food during the seven years of famine. And Israel comes down, they come down to Egypt in order to be fed. And so they're living in Egypt. It was a necessary move, but it was, wasn't designed to be a permanent move. I have something I need right now. This is the place I need to go to get it, but it wasn't meant to be a permanent move. But the exile, eventually, they become slaves and they require rescue. God's through a mediator. Moses rescues them. And you know the account. They escape by going through the Red Sea. It's a kind of baptism. They come out on the other side. All their enemies are dead, floating around them. They have a great celebration, and now what? They have to walk through the wilderness. The Exodus isn't just a standalone story. The Exodus has, uh, the Exodus chorus rings through the rest of the music of the Bible. And whenever something that starts, rings through the rest of the Bible, then it's going to ring through your life and my life. Here's how Alistair McGrath, one, one scholar, says this, The Exodus tells our story. Each of us has a personal journey to make from our own Egypt to the promised land. We have left something behind. We've had to break free from our former lives in order to make the journey. We were in Egypt. We were delivered from bondage. And we are in the wilderness. The story of the Exodus is about us. So when we think about this, again, we're not just trying to remember a story. We are in the Exodus story. And my question as we go through this, this week and next, where are you in this story? Everybody's in the Exodus story. You might go through in your lifetime the Exodus story more than once. So where are you? Let's look at the three stages. First, an awakened desire. Israel, let's just make three observations here. Israel was living in Egypt. What's, what's wrong with that? Israel was living in Egypt. The people of God were living in the wrong place. Yes, they did initially need to go there from famine, but verse 1 of Exodus 1 to verse 23 of Exodus Two, you know how long that is? 400 years. They did need to go down and get food, but they've stayed too long in exile. And when they stay too long, they become accustomed to exile. They, they, they like exile in some form. And then that exile turns into slavery. Some of you know the Psalms of Ascent, these songs that they sing on their way up to, to Jerusalem, the pilgrims. The very first Psalm is 120, and listen to this line, Woe to me, too long I've lived in a strange land. See, I'm making my way back home, and the first thing I'm saying is, I've just lived in a strange land too long. I went to some place and maybe it had a good starting place, but then I held on to it and I made it my home and it's actually imprisoned me. It's caused me to be in exile. 
So second observation I want to just ask is, well, why did they live there so long? They're in the wrong place, but why did they stay 400 years? And these are just some possibilities. One, they were well-fed. Notice that in Numbers 11. When they're out in the desert, what are they complaining about? Onions. Oh, onions. Wish I had onions. You know, they, they just got used to a certain appetite. They got used to a certain diet in exile. And they, their taste grew accustomed to those things. And when they didn't get those in the wilderness, uh, they, they get, began to complain. So it's hard to leave some place that you feel like is meeting some physical need. Secondly, they were fruitful and exceedingly strong. You see that in verse 7, chapter 1. Meaning they, they were relationally strong. They had strong families. They had a sort of a strong culture, a strong community. So they're physically satisfied. They're relationally strong. And then in verse 11, they have some sense of accomplishment. Even though they're slaves, they're building for somebody else. They're building a great city. They can say, look what I've done. Look what we have accomplished. And I would say these three are just a few of the reasons a lot of people choose or just can't get out of slavery. There's a physical need that's being met. There's a relational need that's being met. So I know I'm in the wrong relationship, Paul. But do you know how lonely it is? And he or she or they, they meet that need. So I understand these, these desires, they're, they're powerful desires. I don't want to dismiss them like, hey, just break that chain. No, this is a heavy chain. I'm getting something done. Something meaningful is happening, and I'm a part of it. And that, that can be very attractive. And I want you to know none of these things have to be bad things. But for the, the people who are enslaved, they became ultimate things. I cannot live without them. That's the danger. Not that they have them, but they can't live without them. And so if we're not careful, if we live in exile too long, if you, if you make a place your home that really isn't meant to be your home, those places can turn into prisons. Third observation is just that they become enslaved. They become accustomed to exile. They thought wrongly they were building a life. And what they were doing is building a prison. They were building a tomb in which they were going to bury themselves. This, this is happening to someone right now, right here. You've stayed too long in a place. A good thing has become a God thing. You've become accustomed to what it gives you or how it makes you feel. And that strong passion is now dominating your life. And it seems like you just can't get out of it. And it's becoming a, a prison. Too, too long with the wrong person. Too long in an unsustainable work habit. Too long on social media or news or sports. And you become accustomed to it. And you think you're building a life and you're not. 
Just a couple. There could be hundreds of examples. Anger. Anger. Anger is a place of exile. And when I say that, I mean this. There are good reasons to visit anger, to be angry. It's not a place to live. But some people, if you stay too long in anger, you get used to anger. You get used to the power you have when you get angry. And it becomes a, a prison of bitterness. How about work or accomplishment? I love the, the speaker, poet, David White. I don't know if you know his name. Here's what he says. Listen carefully to his words. My work had become important to me in a subtly corrupting way. I just love the way he writes. It was corrosive. It was corrupting, but I just couldn't see it at the beginning. I ran an educational program in an organization dedicated to environmental teaching. My scheduled busyness was a wonderful measure of my self-importance. Oh, oh, oh. Did that, did, did, was that a spear thrust through somebody's chest right here, right now? My, my scheduled busyness. See, I scheduled myself because it makes me feel important. And that's where I get my value. I felt as if I was affecting hundreds, maybe thousands of people indirectly. Therefore, and listen to his conclusion, I felt it worth killing myself a little bit at a time for it. See, I knew I was killing myself just a little bit at a time, but I couldn't let go. I couldn't let go of what it was giving me, the self-importance, the sense of accomplishment. My, my pace is so fast that if I don't change my trajectory, I'm going to burn up before I get home. That's where some of us are sitting right here. It's not a life, it's, it's a death. This happens to pastors all the time. Unfortunately, the Israelites were enslaved. Fortunately, they've realized they've spent too long in the wrong place. And a a desire is awakened in them. And that's what my hope is for people who say, this is where I am. That a desire gets awakened. And here's how the desire sounds when it gets awakened. Chapter 2, verse 23, they cried out for help. That's the first move. That's the first move. You remember these, these sermons all move together. Remember blind Bartimaeus? Jesus is passing by, and what does he say? Lord, have mercy. That's the first, like some desire, like I'm in the wrong place, and someone else out there has to come and rescue me. I need outside help to get me out of this place. There's a desire that gets awakened to say, I don't want to live here anymore. There must be some other way to live. Verse 24, God hears their groaning. I want you to know if you cry out, God hears that groaning. I mean, sometimes you cry and you feel like it's just going to the ceiling and come back, but God Almighty, He hears that, that groaning. Do you, you remember the rich young ruler when we compared him? He, he had a chance to have a conversation with Jesus, but what was wrong with the rich young ruler? He got accustomed to exile. <laughs> and money, oh, money. It, it sets up a beautiful exile. 
It's very hard to get rid of, as Jesus says. His wealth wasn't a life, it was a prison, keeping him from life, and he just didn't see it. The Israelites had had enough. They were tired of being fed by Pharaoh's hand, and they won out. And so the first stage here is an awakened desire, a a desire to not go in that direction. Now, as I was doing this, I was thinking, and I do this some frequency, who's in the audience here? Who do I need to try to help see something that maybe is energizing and electric as my preaching is, somehow they're tuned out. And I thought, well, if that was, if, I, if it were me, it'd be like when I was in middle school. So I'm, I'm appealing now to all the middle schoolers out here right now. This is going to apply to everyone, but I specifically am targeting middle school people. I saw this little video and I thought, this is going to be perfect because in middle school, you're like 12 to 14, Right. And I want you to know if you're in middle school for for the rest of your life, but especially the next 10 years, the world like Pharaoh is going to hand you these treats. And they're going to make, he's going to make promises. Oh man, as soon as you get this, you are going to be satisfied over and over. Now it does happen the rest of your life, but there's a big concentration that happens between, let's say, 14 and 24. So if you're in middle school, everyone watch this video, but if you're in middle school, you pay attention, all right? I mean, how long is this going to go on? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Do you see that face? Do you see that dog sitting down? This is the, I'm, I've had it. This is the I've had it moment. It, when you're in middle school, again and again, the world is going to say, take this treat. And you're going to be like, mmm, that's yummy. And it's nothing. It is nothing. It's, the world's going to say it's something. But I want you to know, it's air. It is air. And you are going to eat some of those things. I wish I could keep you from it, but I can't. You're going to eat some of those things. But my hope is that somewhere before you get too old, you'll say, I've had it. And you'll remember this goofy little video and Pastor Paul showing it on a Sunday. That, hey, what I've been doing is I've been taking treats from a hand who's giving false hope. One reason I want you to know it now if you're in middle school I know old men and old women who are still feeding off of this. They still think one more something, that's going to be the answer. You 
you have to have an awakened desire. So we stop here and maybe you're waking up right now. Maybe through this text, God is saying, you've lived in the wrong place for too long. You've been feeding off these false promises. It's time to wake up and cry out. Secondly, disorientation. So they awaken to this desire. God sends Moses. Moses, through uh, uh, these series of plagues and miraculous events, they walk through the Red Sea. They get out. They have this big celebration in Exodus chapter 16 that they're finally free. But that's not the end of the journey. Some people think that's the end of the journey. Hey, I met Jesus. I'm finally free. But that's just the beginning of the journey, is it not? Still quite a bit of work to be done. And much of God's refining work is done in the desert. I hate to say, if this is the first time you're hearing this. The refiner's fire. A lot of things get burned off in the wilderness. What I'm calling the, the desert of disorientation. The journey between your salvation and my salvation in the promised land requires a lot of letting go. A lot of letting go. And it takes time. I mean, remember Moses? He, he had to live in the, in the desert for 40 years. These people travel through the desert for 40 years. It takes a long time to let go of so, some of those things that are in your bones from your family of origin. You just, this is the way you're wired. This is what brings happiness. This is how I deal with the outside world. It takes a long time to let go. And God is walking very slowly. He is in no hurry with you. He's not like, let's get to the promised land so we can finally do something. Come on. No, he's just walking at three miles an hour. Just saying, hey, you know what? Today, we're just trying to let something go. And if you can't do it today, guess what? Tomorrow, we'll just be here trying to let it go. Now, I've used this illustration several times, but it's so perfect for this place. There's a series of books called, titled Dear America. Some of you might know this little series. And the way the series is written, it's always in a diary form. So it's historical fiction. You can trust that mostly the events that are happening are true, but somebody is the narrator. Somebody's writing a diary, and you read the book that way. And this one is a little girl who's sort of chronicling her family's trip on what was called the Oregon Trail, 2,000 miles from Missouri to Oregon. And so she writes in her diary, and this is what she says. At the beginning of the trip, the family started out with a covered wagon, stuffed so full of food and their, our most prized possessions that none of us could even ride in the covered section. So we're going to go 2,000 miles, and all of our belongings are packed in, stuffed into this covered wagon, and we get to walk 2,000 miles. One of, one of the most interesting storylines in the book is how the mother, her mother, slowly and painfully leaves her prized possessions on the side of the road. At one point, she writes this, It looked like we left behind the general store a wedding dress 
furniture, tools, a large trunk. And then this, the daughter makes this, this observation. I waited for Ma to break down. See, this is a tough moment when, when you, you, you sort of empty your prized possessions on the side of the store. I'm waiting for her to break down, but she didn't. She reminded me instead that this was the last chance to follow a dream. This is it. This is it. Jesus is it. You only get one life and one chance. You don't get a do-over. This is the one chance to, to say, I've got to lay some things down beside, of, beside the road, and as hard as it is, I've got one chance to get home, and that's more valuable than anything else. After six months of travel, when the family finally enters Oregon, everyone is on foot. They've even left their wagon behind. The mother enters Oregon, the daughter says, with the dress on her back and one spoon in her pocket. So this is our lives. We're in the wilderness. There's a lot of disorientation in the wilderness. Many of us have packed our bags so we make sure we can get through in case God doesn't come through. We're packing our relational accounts. We're packing our retirements account. I mean, just in case God can't provide, I'm packing up a bunch of stuff and he's asking us to go on a 40-year trek, and he's in not no hurry to say, hey, you know what? It's time to let that go. And when you let that go, that can be very painful. Or when God extracts it from you, it can be very painful. And it can be very disorienting. You see that in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 4. The people are out here in the desert. And there's a certain group, it's called the rabble. And they had a strong craving. They had a strong craving to go back. You see, we didn't think it would be like this. I mean, we were happy to get out of slavery. Don't... Don't, don't think that. And I, on Exodus 16, I danced as, and shouted as much as anybody else. But you know what? When I got on board with Jesus, I thought he was going to provide some things. And he's not coming through. I didn't think he would take that away or him away. And now you know what? I want to go back. It's disorienting. You, you understand it. It's not something you look at these people and say, I don't get them. No, you, you, you know it in your heart. And you, you see a number or a symbol in verse 34 next to this town or this location. It's got a strange name. It's got a $10 name. Kibroth Hatava. Now, I'm probably not saying that right, but you don't know the difference, so it's all right. <laughs> and, and probably next to that town... In your Bible, there's a little number or an asterisk or something. You're supposed to go down and find it. And when you go down and find it, it says, this is what that means, the grave of craving. This is where we had to unload a wagon right here. It was cravings for the world. 
This is the grave of craving. And between our salvation and our arrival home, for you, for me, there will be many graves of craving. Shouldn't surprise anyone. But somehow it comes as a surprise, does it not? But when you hear Jesus in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must first what? Pack his wagon. No, that's not, if you don't know your Bible, that's not what it says. He must first, what does it say? Deny himself. You've got to unpack some cravings. Everyone leaving Egypt has to go through the desert. And at some point, that desert is going to be very disorienting. You must know that. If you don't, and you find out just on the journey, it's very difficult to get through. So I'm trying to help you as a guide. Hey, I've been in that place. So understand you're going to arrive at that place. But you can get through it. That's really the topic of next week's sermon. So that leads me to the last point, which is just one single point on reorientation. So we're in the desert. We have this moment of disorientation. How do we make it through? That's the question I want to answer next week. But I just want to close with this one single point as our conclusion. In order to make it through the desert, in order to make it through the wilderness at some point, you and I must give up controlling things. And at times, even understanding things. Let me say that again. If you're going to make it through, you're going to have to learn to give up control and trust God. And at times, not all the time, because God's gracious enough to say, hey, I want you to see or understand this, but there are going to be some things that happen that you're not going to understand in this life. And you're just going to have to carry that. That's hard. That's very hard. As you all know, it's difficult to find the right words to describe the events and tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan. And as I use this as a closing illustration, I don't want to in any way minimize pain or the cost to any group of people. It's a tragedy on so many different levels, so much pain. You see that you've undoubtedly see the little pictures of the 13 men who lost their lives on the news. And a lot of times it'll say, you know, these are the families who are getting a visit from an officer today. I was four when an officer came to my house and told me my dad, who had been on active duty, wasn't come, ever going to come back home. So when I hear that, I, I feel that again. So I don't want to use this to minimize that pain. But I do want to point out the unique difficulty it would be to be a Christian in Afghanistan right now. One pastor in Afghanistan recently received a note from the Taliban saying, we know who you are, we know what you do, and we know where to find you. And the next week they were at his house. 
There are reports of targeted executions of anyone found with Bible software on their phone. There are stories that are worse that I can't say in this setting. This week I read an article, I'll try to link it in the newsletter for next week, um, in which a church in the USA had an outreach to an Afghanistan population that was in their city. And they did this sort of prayer retreat because all these things were unfolding. It was just a couple weekends ago. And both of these cultures come together to worship and pray, which would just be fascinating to, to have been in that. During their time together, one of the Afghan's brothers announces that the Taliban had seized complete control of the country. One of the last songs they sang on the retreat was, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Here's the last lines. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Imagine singing that with a group of Afghan believers. Talk about disorientation. It's hard to it's hard to live in disorientation. You can't get through it by yourself, one of the points of next week. But you, you may find yourself there today. I thought it was just going to be different, Paul. It just hadn't turned out the way I planned or the way I wanted. Or I, I understand. You're not in control of it. You may never understand. But you can make it through. You can make it through because the little window in your soul sees home. And you say, that's where I'm going. And Jesus promises to get us there. Let's pray together. Or so, so much here to hear. so easy for a battle to happen right now in a mind of different voices to be distracting. So I'm praying that the, the clear call of you would be in every mind and every heart this morning. To try to discern from your, with your wisdom, where, where are we? Are we enslaved? Are we crying out? Are we, have we gotten out into the wilderness and now it's, we're disoriented? Where, where are we? And next week, how can, how can we make it home? Lord, would you be near to every soul? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.